Okay, awesome. So that's wonderful. And uh, let's go ahead and get on with our teaching today. You're going to be asked to move back into the Old Testament. And I'm actually picking up in this teaching where we left off on our Thursday teaching. So part of this is just uh, I did not complete the section on the Old Testament. In the life of David, there was a lot to it. And I felt that there was some just wonderful, compelling reasons to conclude at least the Thursday teaching here. But for some of you that haven't had a chance to make the Thursday teachings, this is where we draw from the Old Testament well. And we learn of God's will through the saints of old, the ones who have been remarkably in character pictures of us for the principles we're learning in the New Testament. And in particular, when you study the life of David, you also hear the heart of God. And you also become familiar with the complexities of life in a relatable manner. Because though he was seen by God with great favor, declared in the word as one who had a heart that followed after God, he also had his own challenges in navigating his humanity in the understanding that God had commissioned him for a great work to be a great king and yet we will also see that he was challenged in not only rising to that but also letting God reign over that that's one of the things that's wonderful about David is the majority of his ministry was allowing God to reign over him that means rule to give his heart the precision for what it took to be able to perform the will of God. Precision in discerning what God's heart is in order to satisfy the will of God. So we're going to pick it up right now. And part of the title also is a, is a play on that. But in 1 Samuel, if you'll turn there... Um, Did I leave my bulletin, Christy, or did you, do you have it? Thanks. I think I may have gotten the insert. There we go. So in review of this, I felt that uh, I don't try to cleverly title messages because this is expositional teaching. We move through the text that we left off, and to conclude it, to move into the next chapter. But I did feel that some of these things were just kind of in your face to take note of. The fair maiden, the foolish man, and the faithful God. When we look at that, these are the characters that are presented right now, and they're real-life historical figures. They actually had a purpose in a given moment of time that brought not only God into the center of their lives, but also to exalt some and to give discipline to another. And very often that is the crux. That's what we find in our life as well. God exalts and he corrects. His correction is always a demonstration of his love. That's what we're told in Hebrews. We're not to despise it. Some of us do. But the correction of God 
is for the purposes of becoming even more greatly intimate in our lives. And even though some will not, if you would, move towards God in correction, God has no problem moving them away from those who they trouble, whom they prevent from being all that they are to be in God's will. That's why in this passage of Scripture, we saw that David's reliance on God had everything to do with his fruitfulness and his success in staying the course, a very difficult and hard course. We've already conjectured in certain time pictures that we have, he's about 28 years of age. He's been definitely on the run for at least seven years, and perhaps at this portion of Scripture has about two and a half remaining in which his adversary, who is also his father-in-law, will no longer be a part of, of creating calamity in his life. And one of the things that we saw in last week's Old Testament teaching was that he used a very sweetly disposed woman of God to save him from outstepping God's will. In other words, meddling, even in what could have been a justified outburst of righteous indignation. David was mindful from previous studies that to in any way take within his hands by his power and by even the influence of his men who loved him and followed him would be outside of God's will. It would be an act of sedition, rebellion. It would be an act of corrupting the sovereignty of God to allow the events of humanity to play out. God has reasons for allowing people and circumstances to plague us. One of the chief reasons for that is to draw us nearer to him. Some will, in a momentary act of foolishness, run from God in the predicaments, the circumstances that are uncomfortable. And they'll be back into the cycle again to learn once more what God's heart is. But for those as well who have been trained in the disciplining hand of God, and I think also an important word, not only in sovereignty, but that, that word that implies for the secular world the serendipity of God this extraordinary, unexplainable coordination of events, and you're just going, hmm, I hear the music, and I see the clouds move, and this is a beautiful thing. The Old Testament scholars, and in particular the forefathers of our faith, would call that the providential hand of God. Secular poets would call it the serendipity. This unexplainable work that seems to just coordinate everything into a beautiful poetic song of accomplishment, something that you admire. And so it would be no wonder as well for David who became a marvelous poet for the Lord. The Psalms predominantly have been credited to him. 
and all the instruments that we enjoy, hundreds of them credited to him. Why? Because he learned early how to be navigated by God, even when circumstances incited him to work contrary to God's will. So we pick it up right now, and again, with this title, The Fair Maiden, The Foolish Man, and The Faithful God, peek back with me, if you would, to the 24th chapter, and I know that we're there because it's a long one, but I need you have to go back to the first part of it where we have an introduction of the characters, two of them that we're talking about. In verse 3, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail, and she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. Here's the contrast. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was from the house of Caleb. When we taught on this on Thursday, we were simply saying that sometimes in the lineage, people can mess up because Caleb was a great name, great servant of God, a companion with Joshua. His heritage was stellar, and the lineage was without fault until this guy comes on the scene. That's important to note as well, because there will be that same kind of thing that happens ultimately in David's lineage, and yet this is what we see with regard to David's lineage. God moves by grace and through the bloodline of his son to bring together those individuals that at one time disqualified the families from having anything to do with God to having every reason to want all that God would offer. In the generations that will follow from David's right now life to the time that Jesus comes on the scene, Everything compresses historically to take the worst of humanity and the best and to forge it into everything that he would be as the Son of God. For God made him as man, that he could identify fully with man. So where does this go then in the text with both the maiden and the foolish man and ultimately God? represented through this hero, David. It simply goes right here. God is revealing that there's something very special about this woman. And he would say as well to those here who are sisters, something very special. There is, in fact, Abigail presented in the scriptures but God would say to you this day, sisters, ah, the Father's joy. In essence, that is what her name means in Hebrew. The joy of the Father, the Father's joy. Isn't that cool that we can discover, I think, intricately and purposely presented what the Father thinks of us when we know that others think far differently? Than that towards us. But one of the things that we want to also see in this text, 
as she is simply being reintroduced, is she's also very much a Proverbs 31 woman. She has industry that marks her life. Proverbs 31, I will ask you to flip over there for encouragement. I find this to be a blessing. I think it's important that our encouragement is in this. Who can find a virtuous wife? Verse 10. For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her. Oh, Nabal, fool. So he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. And she seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maid servants. She considers a field and buys it. And from her prophets, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hand holds the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. I pause there to say, this was precisely where David was at with his 600 men plus. He had 600 warriors, and those warriors had family members, and many of them had children. So he had a huge following that required so much in order to take care of them. So you can make that presumption. He's worked hard. He has been faithful in protecting them. And now he's come into a situation in which his needs are greatly being projected by the fatigue of those who have followed him. He comes to this man for he had, in fact, a history of protecting all that this man had owned and safeguarding it from, if you would, Philistine rogues that would come in and attack and steal sheep and produce. This was David who put his men on the perimeter and risked the lives of his warriors to oversee this man's estate. And so it would not have been something that David would have concluded would have been without reward for services rendered. It doesn't even indicate that David had made a contractual agreement to do what it was he did do. But in the time of need, then we saw last week that Nabal's reaction was contrary to God's heart. And so we move back into this text, having identified, I think, what we will see are some of the attributes of this very godly woman. You know, prior to where we're starting off, 
It says in the 18th verse that Abigail was one who made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seahs of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. If she had command of her maidservants, she certainly would have command over the servants that the men would have occupied, but it almost implies that she did this as much with them, if not apart from them. Why? Because the scriptures are proving to us that she was one who had a devoted heart to God. And devotion to God has an interesting expression in the industry of things done for God. What's the industry being done for God? She has heard word that David is returning and he is returning to enact a righteous vengeance on what he has discovered is a refusal of Nabal to make provision for his needs. We closed on the Proverbs. She sees the needs and she satisfies them. She already has everything scoped out and her intentions are to do good and to honor the Lord. And so where we left off right now was that this transaction had happened and that now in the encounter that she has with David and the appeal that she has already made for him not to do things in his own strength, with his own reputation, to not defile the kingship that he was and she saw going to inherit. She saw things in the future concerning what she knew of David, the David of old, who at 16 conquered a giant, became a warrior, a singer and psalmist in the court of Saul, who had been dispatched throughout the entire Judean wilderness, moving and hiding from Saul while still doing good on behalf of God. She says this in this close of 31, and I do want to emphasize this. Remember your maidservant. Remember your maidservant. She's making an appeal because she's now quenched the anger in David. She's acknowledging overtly that he is her king. And she's saying with all humility, whatever I may have impressed you in doing, when you remember, remember your maidservant. And it's actually a picture, it's actually a picture of what we get to say who we know to be our greater than David, and that's our Jesus. Lord, as you remember the things of your heart towards us, to the work that you're doing in the church, remember me, Lord. Remember my heart for you, the industry of the things that I want to accomplish for you. Remember me, Lord. So where does Nabal then fit into this? How could there be a woman with such character 
such honor, such industry, such accomplishment, such beauty, married to Nabal. And we discovered last week, and she was even able to testify to make sure that this collision of judgment would not take place against David or against her husband. She's right in the middle of a predicament. How does she protect her husband? How does she bring tribute to a king that she knows very well has been ordained by God? She puts herself directly in the center of it. And Nabal's name means, and I find this to be interesting, senseless fool. A senseless fool. How would you like to be named that? It is interesting because they actually gave names to their sons that implied exactly what their characters would be. Johnny Cash had a famous song, A Boy Named Sue. But Nabal is the senseless fool. He was crass and he was cruel. Crass implies this, lacking sensitivity, irreverent, lacking intelligence. But he had land. He had land. He had sheep. He had sheep. He had servants. He had servants. He had power. Yep. It would be indicative that he had money, and money can be power. But what he didn't have was character. And in contrast to the Proverbs woman, he had nothing. And without God, nothing that he had could mean anything. And the evidence of how deeply his spiritual life was is reflected in what he would not do in meeting the needs of a godly man and who one day, very shortly, would be his king. I wonder how differently we would all be if we saw just a little bit in the future of what somebody will be in God. But it's also important to note that that future may be, even as Nabal's, completely fruitless and irrelevant. Because the Bible says this, and it is true in the Proverbs, Psalms, I believe, is where I'm anchoring in a 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And in essence, I think that that would best define Nabal, a fool who in his heart said there is no God. By his name and ultimately in his behavior, he said, this is the sum of my life. Deal with it. And the fact of the matter is, is he's given an invitation to God to deal with him because he will not repent. So what's the contrast then that God would be showing us in this scripture and only through the verses that we've tracked so far? He wants us to see that in life there are tensions created by foolishness and a devotional heart. And the two are not necessarily meant to be united. However, there are circumstances in which it does happen and therefore, what's the heart that needs to prevail? The foolish heart or the heart that is set divinely on the will of God. It's the one that's divinely set on the will of God and perhaps even in the misery of foolishness.
It takes time for God to sort these things out. It takes a steadfast love for God in order to let him settle the issues of foolishness among men. There can be both foolish women and there can be foolish men. But what God wants to do is to correct that he might find faithful men and faithful women in unity, not divisiveness. And there's principles for that. Even David is learning these things as he's moving through God. The persuasion of the voice of people. This is your chance, David. Saul's come into the cave. He's within arm's reach of you. David say, no, stay the sword. He is the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to touch him. And a second time in which David, as we learned last week, enters into the camp, where sleeping right next to Saul is Abner, his general, a general protecting his king. And David and his men move into the camp while they're sleeping and take the sword and a skin of wine or water to show that they had another opportunity to take by force and to qualify it as God's will. Saul's life because Saul was behaving foolishly but as there will be a consequence to Nabal's life shortly following there will be a consequence to Saul's life because carnality will always have its own reward and that's termination from what would be the fruitfulness of a man and woman's life it just can't be that a man can presuppose that living in foolishness without repentance will yield a favorable outcome. It cannot happen. However, for the foolish man that is able to see wisdom in those who are exercising faith and to say, their lives are marked differently than mine. I seem to have everything and yet nothing. They seem to have nothing and yet claim everything. I've got to have a difference in my life marked by something that right now is not in me. I'm marked by all the things that are not making me happy, but I'm not yet marked by God, who these people declare is the source of supply and of life. May I also say this, which is a clever wording of a principle concerning Nabals and those who have it all but have nothing and those who have nothing but yet have it all. Jesus takes paupers and he makes them into princes. But those who like Nabal who are fools are actually frogs in disguise. They will never be princes. They're an illusion, a delusion. It doesn't matter how often they are told they are princely or how much the maiden kisses them. They're a frog in disguise. And so the principle right now is to be able to separate, even as God is doing, what is the heart of that man or that woman in their life and my placement in this situation that's intended by God to bring them closer to him. 
The analogy is important because Nabal will never rise to be anything other than a fool, and he will actually meet his demise as a fool. David will rise, who right now is a pauper king. He knows what he's been told by God. He exercises in what he is able to do with what he has been given to do, which is to trust God in this season of nomadic wandering and taking care of a very large family and ultimately the acquisition of things that have been given and the things that he gives, protecting those who don't care at all about him. He's already protected two city-states, only to be betrayed by them. It's hard to walk a godly life, but it's harder to live a backsliding life. And it's harder actually to live a life in which your back has been turned towards God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. If you find one who says there is no God and shields it in the arguments of theology or social psychology or politics is even to sound spiritual, but they do not have God in their heart or the knowledge of the Holy One, you have met in a ball. And the question is, will you become as they are or will they become as you are? The dilemma is they cannot become as you are unless they become as you became, submitted to God. You cannot be their God. Beauty sometimes is God in a man's life. And that's a sad thing. Nabal had the scent of a beautiful woman and actually linked with him in marriage. He would have had a model wife. He had the scent of a barbecue. He could throw those tailgate parties because it tells us that he soon is involved in throwing a big party. He was able to choose the finest wines from his inventory in which the melee of celebration could drive men into stupors which will put them to sleep but not bring them any closer to God. All of these things were at his disposal and his mind was on them. But as one gives way in which his eyes should have been on her and to have the heart that she had for the God that she loved and for the Lord ultimately that she recognized he was blind. Blind. And so she says, remember me, your maidservant, prophesying in advance for what she believed in her heart she had heard and knew. And as it continues, David said to Abigail, blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. When you're seeing a woman that meets God because she loves him more than you, you have found a woman that can love you. It's a great truth. When a woman has found a man that loves God, 
more than he loves her, she is able to say, I found my prince. I will have a life that is charmed, not harmed. I will have one who can deliver me in the things that challenge me. On both sides of this, David, a godly man who followed the Lord with his heart. Abigail, a godly woman who remains in place in protecting a foolish husband and protecting a king who was ready to behave foolishly. To meddle in the affairs of God. To take things into his own hands. He greets her and says, blessed is the Lord. He acknowledges that God has serendipitously met him on the battlefield of carnality. That's what it would have been. Had he swung his sword, he'll say exactly what he was going to do. Take out every male child. Leave her estate in ruins. That's actually the game plan of warfare in those days. And as a warrior, he probably could have been justified Abigail of Carmel, not even necessarily a part of what you would call the Jewish proper state. But she's exercising as one who has been properly reared in the things of God. David celebrates her behavior, celebrates God's deliverance from the words that have been used. How wonderful it is when the language of God has been spoken to our hearts and we see that he has prevented us from indulging in calamity. How wonderful it is for wives to share the words of God, for husbands to receive the words of God. Blessed is your advice. Blessed are you. Because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. Man, when somebody can get between you and the fallout of your temper, it's a deliverance by God. And he will use the one closest to your heart, your spouse. On the reciprocal, a husband will be used, even as the Lord to be able to listen and to be able to stand firm in protecting you. It's a beautiful picture. Indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. And so David received from her hand what she had brought. And this is a beautiful picture. The Lord receives from our hands, his bride, what we have brought the fruit of our love for him. There's fruit that God has given to us as we have believed in him. We are his bride. Oh, sometimes it appears that we're the ugly bride. We're the one that just doesn't measure. We don't make it into the magazines of what the culture would say are the secular beauties. But from God's perspective, there could not be any more beautiful of a woman than his church, the bride of Christ. 
David indeed would not have had to question her beauty. You do not indeed have to question your beauty from the perspective of the Lord. You are everything that we see in Abigail. The joy of the father. Why does the father take joy in a daughter like Abigail, like us? Because we're into his son. We're into his son. David would be, according to the word of God, the lineage by which Jesus would come. Jesus would be identified as the son of David. And God takes great joy in his son. God from heaven would proclaim the joy that he had in his son, the favor that was given to his son when he entered into ministry under the baptism of John. David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. Two attributes there that are given. You go up to your house in peace. And also, the voice that you have given to me is respected. The church has a voice that renders the fruit of peace in the transactions that we make with God. And there's also respect that God does lend to us in how we voice reverence to him, the things that we do. Abigail is being indeed praised while God simultaneously is being praised. And that's the beauty as well. Is it possible to have two things work together at once? It is. The character that God has given to us as his bride is able to be harmoniously united with the praise that is due Jesus, the Son. You can be indeed extolled for the beauty and the giftings the peace that is recognized in your life while simultaneously the tributes to God are just beautifully being acknowledged. It's a wonderful picture here. David cites her, you're a respected person. We want to be those who are respected, don't we? But you have heard this, respect is earned. That is true while at the same time, respect also is given. The position that you hold as a believer, the position that you hold as the bride of Christ is worthy of respect. And though you may not get it, it doesn't diminish one thing that God feels about you towards it. Every position that God has given has been assigned and is worthy of respect. David cites this for her character. Her husband cannot be given that credit. He will have no peace, 
for he is a fool, and he will not be respected, for he has disdained God in his heart. Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was, here it is, holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. He wasn't a king. He was a cruel taskmaster, vindictive, unfair. But he says that his heart was being made merry within him, for he was drunk, and therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. Doesn't say that she kicked him, doesn't say she gave him a lecture, doesn't say she threw cold water on his face. It just says that she quietly assessed the situation and moved from it until morning light. And so it was in the morning when the wine had gone out from Nabal and his wife had told him these things that his heart died within him and he became like a stone. It simply says that she declared her intercession where she was. I could not be a part of what it is. Ultimately, you were paying the price for this morning, but this is where I was and this is what I did. And the news completely it's implied, moved him into having a stroke. It says this, that as his heart died within him, he became like a stone. Then it happened after about 10 days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. It may be that this was even a grace note, that as his heart became, if you would like stone, not suggesting yet that he had died, he had an opportunity to repent for what he had done how he had been, but he chose to cleave to being a fool. And so without, re without repentance, there can be no salvation. So we all can have reasons as to why we're not going to change who it is we are, but God ultimately has the final decision in what happens. And when breath is removed and the heart does not beat and the mind cannot cognizantly deal with God and voice faith in God, then it's over. Nabal died as a fool and without God. He lost his wife and everything that he lived for because he had not made a decision that was available to make. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So every man can claim that. And if such, what do we do with the favor? Oh, there are difficulties, and we know that. Both in how a woman works with a man and how a woman works with her. How a man works with a woman and how the woman works with her man. There are dynamics. But in this case, he was just a dud. He was not under the influence of what seemingly was so powerfully a picture of favor given to him. On the other hand, for a godly husband, it's important to raise the bar as well in not only encouraging him as a godly wife, but following close be, closely behind him and beside him in the godly walk. David was able to identify character. And as he passes away, being struck by the Lord, David heard that Nabal was dead, and he said, Blessed be the Lord who was 
who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal and his own head, and David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. In that culture at that time, this was actually an act of what is called redemption. She would be left without the primary provider for her home. All the things that we can say is a Proverbs woman is anchored in the home of a spiritual and godly man. But if the ideal is not met there, God can certainly raise up a woman to make sound provision. But in this case, the laws would have favored in his death it being granted to someone else if she could not be redeemed. Who would argue with the king coming in? to redeem a woman who has lost her husband. No one would. It was inarguable to the majority of people that David was their king in the wings, in waiting. It was only to the fault of Saul and his men. The majority of people knew that Samuel had anointed David at a young age and that David was the champion of their faith and of their culture of their city. So when you see David doing this, it's not that he's lusting after a beautiful woman. He sees the beauty and the character of a godly woman, and he moves in to redeem her from the law that would take all that she had and give her nothing. As a result of that, he gets all of it. His motivation wasn't to get all of it. His motivation was to redeem a woman who now, in losing her husband, would lose it all. In the same sense, the Lord looks at us in what would be our moments of losing all that we have. And he sees the despair and ultimately the predicament. He says, I'm redeeming you. And you will not have to lose anything because it's all coming to me. You're transferring it over to me. You'll lose nothing. And that's the beauty here. He's picturing literally the redemptive work of God to take people that find themselves in predicaments. He'll redeem you from the predicament that you're in as you, in the character of Abigail, are bringing joy to your father because you're looking to the son. And the son says, Father, bless Abigail today. Bless Abner today, who is like a gale force of refreshing wind and spirit. Bless him. So David comes in as a redeeming picture. And so he sends an entourage to make the request. Who's our entourage when the Lord whispers the proposal in our ear? The Holy Spirit. Has the Holy Spirit been speaking to any of us? Can we remember the day in which the Holy Spirit says, by the way, Jesus loves you. He'd like you to join him for a wedding. As what? As the bride. Really? Yeah. He thinks you're awesome. Wants to bring you from where you're at which isn't bad, but things have changed and it's not getting better. You want to be a part of his love? So he sends this entourage. They make the proposal for David. Abigail, it says, rose in haste. 
and rode on a donkey. It shows humility, and it also shows, believe it or not, favor. A donkey actually had two pictures. A king would ride on a donkey, or a woman who was at the disposal of a king, or a humble servant. She's showing all of these things. She is the humble servant who went to collect the things for the king's men. And she's also signifying that upon the king's request, she now rides the donkey. For them, that was a noble beast. Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on what the Jews would have said was a noble beast. The Romans would have laughed at it. Not a stallion, a noble beast. And there she is coming in. She follows the messengers of David, and it says, became his wife. The Lord would say, have you really become all that this pictures? Moving away from foolishness, which ought to have died yesterday, or the minute you heard this word, behavior uncomely, doubts that do not belong to the believer, or perhaps the doubts that prevent you from believing that there is a reason for you to make a decision. And if there's a decision that you've made for God, is there anyone that's come into your life that is your God other than Jesus, or a woman that's become your goddess, but she is not Jesus, and the man is not Jesus, but there can be this evidence that says more of Jesus in you, and then character will be seen and fruit will be tasted, and love will not be denied. But if you want one before the other, you're a fool. If you want anything else but God first, the heart of David first, then you'll have a heart that seizes up and days to change before the decision becomes no longer yours to make. It's been made. So. We all have things ultimately to celebrate with respect to God. And I just love even that word resonating in me. She was seen as a woman of virtue and respect and who had the peace of God. May that be true for us.